In our passage this morning, we see people rejecting Jesus. This may be a surprise for you that people would reject Jesus. There's an interesting thing about Jesus in this world. Almost everyone who gets to know him, who reads about him or hears something about Jesus, there's, there's actually an attraction. I have heard people from almost every religion offer respect for Jesus. They may reject Christianity, but they're fine with Jesus. I remember having one conversation with a man I was seeking to evangelize who told me that he was interested in Jesus. And he said while he wasn't a Christian and didn't want to be a Christian, that he thinks that if he had lived during the time that Jesus had been alive and seen his miracles and seen his teaching, he's sure that he probably would have believed in him. I wonder if you've thought the same thing, that you might have a different kind of relationship with Jesus if you had been there, if you had seen his miracles and heard his teaching live. You know what's interesting about the gospel record, the inspired record of Jesus' life and ministry, is that that idea, that imagination doesn't work itself out in reality or in fact. There were people who were there who saw Jesus' mighty miracles, who heard his powerful teaching, who had front row seats into what Jesus was doing when he came to earth. And they didn't respond as we might think that they did. They didn't all embrace him. They didn't all love him and follow him. They didn't get drawn up in his ministry and all obey him and embrace him as the king that he says that he was. The king of heaven come to earth to reveal God to us and to bring salvation. No, in fact, by and large, most people who came across Jesus didn't embrace him, didn't love him, and didn't follow him, but actually rejected him. That is the title of our sermon this morning, Rejecting Jesus. And we are going to get a little window into one part of Jesus' ministry, one day in Jesus' ministry as we look together at Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Luke 11, verses 14 to 26. Luke 11, verses 14 to 26. In our last two passages in Luke, a few weeks ago, Jesus had been teaching his disciples, his followers, about prayer. What to pray and how to pray. And In the Lord's Prayer, we saw a model for prayer, and we saw that it was a revolutionary model, one that turns our world upside down, centered not on us, but on God's glory and Christ's coming kingdom. Well, this morning, Jesus continues to demonstrate that he is the one who brings God's kingdom to earth. And he does this, he demonstrates this through miracles. And while Jesus' disciples humbly sit at his feet, eager to learn from him, Others respond to Jesus the exact opposite way, with hatred and with rejection. So, If you're taking notes this morning, the main point of our passage is this. Jesus came to deliver from Satan's deception. Jesus came to deliver from Satan's deception. And we will have three points from our text this morning. Satan's deception... Jesus' deliverance, and hard-hearted rejection. Satan's deception, Jesus' deliverance, and hard-hearted 
rejection. I pray this morning that we would see Jesus clearly as the long-promised deliverer who would crush the serpent's head. And I pray that we would respond to him, not like the crowds in our passage, with hard hearts, that we would respond to him with soft hearts and embrace him as our Savior and King. Let's begin by reading our passage. Follow along with me as I begin reading Luke 11, starting in verse 14. And if you have your e-bulletin and not a Bible, you can find it on page 4. This is God's word. Now he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out of him, I'm sorry, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean person has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Point number one, Satan's deception. Point number one, Satan's deception. Jesus had just finished teaching his people on prayer. And he had just said in the passage before that our father is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And the greatest gift that he gives them is himself, the gift of his son. And then the gift of the third person of the Trinity, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he gives this gift to those who ask him. Well, the very next passage, we come across a man who cannot ask God for such good gifts because he's mute. He is being so dominated by a demon, so controlled by a demon that he's possessed by this demon. And Jesus delivers him from this satanic oppression. This demon was demonstrating his control over this man by keeping him mute, which means he was unable to speak. Now, Jesus demonstrates who he is, God himself in human flesh, the incarnate God, God's promised Messiah who would come and deliver his people by another miracle. And this miracle is one that he's done in the past. He casts out this demon, demonstrating his authority over Satan and his realm, and demonstrating that he's come to deliver God's people 
from Satan's deception and Satan's dominion. Now, who is Satan? Who is this Beelzebul, the prince of demons? A quick theology lesson. Satan is one of God's created beings. He is an angel, but not one of the angels that serves God, but one that formerly served God, but serves him no longer. He is a fallen angel. Now, angels are spirit beings. They are not physical beings with bodies like you and me. They are spirit beings. But they are still creatures created by God. They are limited. Satan is not as great as God. Satan's uh, uh, battle with God is not some kind of cosmic dualism where two equal and great powers fight one another. No, Satan is just one of God's created beings. But he is one who has rebelled against God and whose very heart and life are bent on destroying God's good work. Satan is the greatest of the angels that fell and the leader of all of the fallen angels. And it looks like there are numerous such who took part in Satan's rebellion against God, who no longer wanted to serve him, but wanted to set themselves up as king. We read of Satan first, the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, who uh, there Satan appears as a serpent tempting Adam and Eve. And we see something of what he's like from that very first scene. He is a liar and a deceiver. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And there he seeks to undermine the newly created man and woman. There seeks to undermine their faith and trust in God. He questions the truthfulness of God's word and God's command. And he offers to them the one thing that God has forbidden from them, this fruit, the the one tree, the fruit from the one tree that God said that they could not eat from. And he succeeds in this deception. He leads them astray. He leads them into his own rebellion against God. And in Adam and Eve's sin, all of mankind, including you and me, fell as well. Now Satan not only deceived Adam and Eve and led mankind into sin and into the rebellion that he began, he also seeks to rule and does rule in some measure over all of mankind as well. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. He and his demons are called principalities, rulers, who rule over their kingdom. And fallen humanity are part of their kingdom. And they are still at work doing the same thing, seeking to deceive and to destroy God's created beings. Now here, Jesus demonstrates his authority over all of the spirit beings. That he is not just a man, and as a Messiah, he is not just a man, but that he is God himself in human flesh. And he's demonstrating his authority over these spirit beings. And he's also making a declaration that their evil rule will one day come to an end. And in casting out demons, Jesus is showing that their kingdom is cracking and crumbling. And he is pointing to the fact that in his cross, when he deals with the wrath of God against his people, that he will also, on the cross, be dealing a death blow to Satan's deception and dominion. That he will, through his cross, do what 
God had promised in Genesis 3, crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent would bruise his heel. Now, as Jesus demonstrates this through a powerful sign and miracle, notice the response of the people. Look at verse 14. First of all, the people are marveling. They see that this is a great miracle. They see that this is not something that happens every day. They are marveling. But some of them, it looks like the leaders among them, are jealous of Jesus' abilities and of the fact that people are marveling at him and they're jealous for the position of power and control that they have that they feel is slipping away. And so what do they do? Do they acknowledge Jesus' power and authority? Do they acknowledge that he's proving that he is the Messiah? No. They grasp at arguments. They grasp at straws. It looks like they grasp at any argument they can come up with to try to undermine Jesus. And look at the argument they come up with in verse 15. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. You see what they're saying. Oh, sure, he can cast out a demon, but that's, that's the work of Satan. He's showing that he's on Satan's side. And you think about how ridiculous this argument is. I remember a, a wise Christian once saying to me, the human mind is never more creative than when it's seeking to defend its own position. We can be like this too, right? We come up with quick arguments to prove ourselves right. We come up with whatever convenient argument works to make the best defense possible for proving someone else wrong. And here, the religious leaders do this. Some are accusing him of casting out demons by Satan. Others, it says in verse 16, test him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. In, in other words, they thought that that sign wasn't big enough, clear enough, proof enough that they are asking Jesus to do even more miracles. But Jesus would not be their dancing monkey. He would not be their magician doing tricks for them. Now look at what Jesus does do, though. In his love and in his patience, he doesn't respond to this incredible arrogance and rejection with an evil statement. No, he kindly and lovingly and logically shows that their argument is false. Look at what he does in verse 17. First of all, Luke tells us that Jesus knows their thoughts, which is a, a, a hint of what uh, of, of who Jesus is, that he is God himself in human flesh. He can read their thoughts, it says. And then he said this to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Now what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's saying this doesn't make any logical sense. And he uses an illustration from nations or from households. Any nation that takes part in civil war is killing itself from the inside. Any house that is involved in fights and battles inside is in a place of destruction. Now, even us in our own nation have a history of a civil war. And we read about civil wars throughout the world throughout human history. What is a civil war? Well, it's when a nation doesn't protect itself from other nations and fight against other nations, but when a nation fights 
within itself. Our own history of the Civil War in America is a heartbreaking and bloody history. And the effects of that Civil War are still in play in our country. Those dividing lines are often still in place as people picked sides, as at times fathers took up weapons against sons, brothers against brothers as the North fought the South, as the nation was so divided that it led to all-out war within. Jesus is saying, if this is the case in Satan's kingdom, if Satan is attacking his own uh, demons, well, his kingdom isn't going to stand for long. This makes no sense. And he not only says that, he gives another argument in verse 19. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, that is Satan, the prince of demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? It looks here that Jesus is saying that even some of the religious leaders of his day had some success in dealing with demons. And if they had some success in dealing with demons, Jesus is saying the same argument that they're using against him could be used against them. If they had some success by God's power dealing with demons, well, then that same argument that they're using against Jesus could be used against them. And then he says, they, that is your sons, your followers, who are able to cast out demons, will one day be your judges. They will prove you wrong on the last day in the judgment seat. And then he says this in verse 20. But if it is by the, king, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, Jesus here is saying one thing, that when he acts, God acts through him. He is indeed acting. And when he acts, the hand of God acts on earth. The finger of God is at work. But by using this phrase, the finger of God, Jesus is also quoting from the Old Testament. And he's quoting a very interesting passage, Exodus chapter 8. Turn with me quickly to Exodus 8. It's a passage that our family has actually been reading in our family devotions over the last two weeks. It's in the middle of the section on Moses delivering God's people from Egypt. And because of Pharaoh's hard heart and refusal to give up God's people to him and to acknowledge that God is God, through his hard heart, God brings plagues upon Egypt. And all of us who have had experience of being in Sunday school as children, I'm sure, have heard the stories of the ten plagues of Egypt that God brought. Now Moses comes, demonstrates that he is God's leader to deliver God's people, and he proves this through miracles, and then he begins demonstrating this through plagues, these acts of judgment on, uh, on Egypt and on Pharaoh. The first plague is that of turning water, the Nile, into blood. Now what's interesting is Pharaoh has his own magicians, his own miracle workers who are his, uh, his counselors who surround him. And what's interesting is Moses does a great miracle and they attempt to do sort of the same thing on the side to try to prove that, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And in the first two plagues, they're actually able to do it. They're able to turn water to blood. In the second plague with the frogs, they're able to bring up frogs as well into the land. But in Exodus chapter 8, something interesting happened. Look at Exodus 8, starting in verse 1 and 2. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. And then you see the magicians doing the same in verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. But eventually, Pharaoh gives in and in verse 8 asks Moses and Aaron, plead with the Lord to take the frogs away. And if you will, I will let the people go. But he doesn't follow through on this. Verse 7, he hardens his heart. Sorry, verse 12. After Moses cries out, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Verse 15. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then the third plague in verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats. Little tiny flies in all of the land of Egypt. And they did so. And there were gnats everywhere. What's interesting about this plague then, verse 18, is the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So do you see what Jesus is doing here by referring to this passage in Exodus? He's actually saying that that scene back there in Exodus chapter 8, with God demonstrating his power and authority through his word and through plagues in the person of Moses and Aaron, that that scene that's going on there with Pharaoh's hard heart and the magicians attempting to do the same, that in that scene the magicians were able to recognize when it was that this was only something God could do. Here, Jesus has done the same. He has done something that only God's Messiah could do. He's demonstrated his authority over Satan and over his demons. And what have the religious leaders done? They've said, you've done it by Satan. They, like Pharaoh, have hardened their hearts against God. And they, like Pharaoh, have refused to submit themselves to the truth, to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Now, the irony of this whole passage is these people have set themselves up as judges, attempting to be the one to decide whether or not Jesus is or is not the Messiah. The irony is, while they have thought that they can be the ones to declare what of these works is Satan working and what of these works is God working, the irony is, at the very same time, they are under the deception of Satan. You see how sneaky Satan is. He's convinced them that they are able to see. He's convinced them that their eyes are open. And at the same time, he has blinded them to the truth. This is what Satan has come to do. This is what he is doing. He is deceiving. He is seeking to dominate. And he is seeking to destroy all of God's created beings. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see clearly who Satan is. And it is only when we see who Satan is and what he is up to that we can understand with even greater joy what Christ has come to do. That's point number one, Satan's deception. Point number two here, Jesus' deliverance. Point number two, Jesus' deliverance. Look at verse 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. 
But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus here is using this as an illustration to describe what he has come to do to Satan's kingdom. Jesus is the strong man who has come, the even stronger man who attacks the one who thinks he is strong and trusts in his own uh, armor. Jesus is coming to destroy Christ's kingdom, to destroy his plans and ultimately divide his spoil. This is a way that Jesus is describing what he's doing in bringing and gathering a people for himself. He is plundering Satan's kingdom. He is at work dividing his spoil, taking captives for himself, but not to dominate them, not to hurt them, not to destroy them, but to give them life, eternal life with him forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the wonder of the gospel message. Though we are sinners, though we have rebelled with Satan, we have followed in Satan's rebellion and rejecting our God as king. The, the beauty of the gospel message is that God didn't just destroy us. He didn't set us aside with Satan, set, setting us apart for destruction. No, he pursued us. And he pursued us with, him very, with his very self. God, the Father, sent Jesus, his Son, the second person of the Trinity, to earth. And he sent Jesus to earth to save sinners like you and like me. He came to deliver us from sin, from sin's effects, from sin's power, and from the punishment that is due us. What Jesus did in his perfect life is he earned for us what we could not earn. What he did in his sacrificial death is he purchased for us what we could not purchase for ourselves. Our sins being forgiven. And the hope that one day we would be able to be gathered with God's people forever. This is why Jesus has come, and he's come to fulfill the promises. The promises there in Genesis chapter 3, that one day one would come to reverse the curse, to reverse God's punishment for mankind by crushing the serpent's head. On the cross, Satan thought that he had won a victory, killing the Son of God, but in actual fact, our king who delivers, though he was rejected through his rejection, He actually rules victorious. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this gospel message is sweet to you this morning. I hope that you are in awe of all that Christ has delivered you from if you're a Christian. I hope if you're hearing this for the first time, and you hear that there is a way of deliverance through Christ, that you would listen to this message, that you would not only hear it, but respond to it by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. And I pray that today for you could be that day of salvation. Jesus came to deliver from Satan's deception, which means all of us deep down are deceived. All of us, while we think we are wise, are actually fools, which means that we need to be suspicious of our own natural perspectives and inclinations. The Bible tells us that we are, in fact, twisted in our minds and our hearts and in our desires. When Jesus comes to deliver us from sin and from Satan's deception, 
we must take Jesus' side against Satan. We must take Jesus' side against our sin. And this leads us to point number three, hard-hearted rejection. Hard-hearted rejection. Verses 23 to 26. Look, first of all, here in point number three, at verse 23. Jesus gets to the end of this explanation about what he's come to do. To plunder Satan's kingdom. And then he says this, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying that there is ultimately two kinds of people. And he's saying that at the end of the day, you can't be in two minds about Jesus. You are either with him or against him. You are either a committed follower of Jesus, or you are, in fact, on Satan's side, working against him. I think at times, some of us can think, well, I'm not one of these religious leaders who completely rejects Jesus, so as long as I'm not one of those extremists, I should be fine, right? Maybe you are a religious extremist. Maybe you are anti-Jesus this morning. Maybe you are skeptical in your mind and heart like these religious leaders. Maybe you reject the reality of miracles or the truthfulness of what the Bible says about Jesus, that he was God become man who came to earth to save sinners. It may be that you are in that category. If you are like these religious leaders, at the final judgment, it will be worse for you to have seen the truth about Jesus and to have rejected it outright. But do you know that there's more than one way to have a hard heart against Christ? There's more than one way to reject Jesus. Here we see that it's not only those that with anger and hatred reject Jesus, that are those that reject Jesus. There's other ways to reject him. And one of the ways we can reject him is by simply being indifferent towards him. By simply not making a decision. Often with our children, we will use this phrase, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And the same thing is true when it comes to Jesus and the gospel message. You may say, well, I don't reject Jesus, but I just haven't gotten around to actually following him yet. But I'm going to one day. I mean, I like him. I think he's true. Do You see, there were many people in the crowd who were in this category. And Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. We've been in a time in our state where we've had many fires. I want to imagine together with you an illustration. Imagine there was a fire in your area. Imagine you were within the area of that fire in which you needed to leave, to be displaced, to escape for your own safety. Now imagine a person being in their home, their comfortable home, and hearing on the radio or seeing on the television that the fire is getting closer and that they're part of that evacuation area and, and that the authorities are telling you, if you live in this area, you need to evacuate. Now imagine the person hears that and thinks, okay, I guess I'm, I might need to evacuate at some point, but I don't see the fire yet. I don't smell it yet. Can't be that close. And so they don't refuse to evacuate. They just put it off. Imagine they begin to see their neighbors gathering their possessions, getting into their cars, and driving away. Imagine some of the neighbors knock on their door to make sure they're okay. 
and you hear the warning and you see what others are doing and you decide to just wait a little longer. And imagine over time, you delay and delay until it's too late, until the fire is too close, until the fire has actually cut off all of your escape routes. Brothers and sisters, this is what it can be like for us when it comes to salvation. This is what it can be like for us if we delay turning from our sins and trusting in Christ. We can, with our indecision, make a decision against Christ with our delayed obedience. Disobey Christ by refusing to choose sides. You see here that there is no third option. You are either with Christ or you are against him. Jesus goes on in verses 24 to 26 to describe, it looks like, someone like the man he has just cast the demon out of, this mute man who can now speak. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. See what Jesus is describing. That there are some, even that Jesus had casted demons out of, who will not be saved on the last day. They experience something of Jesus' power, something of Jesus' authority, something of his miracles, and yet while they benefited from his miracles in the short term, they rejected Jesus in the long term. And he says with people like this, it will be worse for them in the end because they tasted something. They saw clearly who it was that Jesus was. And they were, at best, indifferent to him. They didn't respond as they should have, with reckless abandon, putting their lot in with Jesus. Committing themselves and putting their allegiance with Jesus, turning from their sins, trusting him in him as their Savior, and following after him for the rest of their days. Do you know that this can happen today, these kinds of responses to Jesus aren't just the responses that happened in Jesus' day. It's the kinds of responses that you and I and the people around us are having on a daily basis now. People are responding to Jesus with hard-hearted rejection. Some may be arrogant and proud and skeptical, dismissing Jesus. Others, they may just be indifferent to him. Others may be delaying in following him, putting it off. But do you see that whatever category you're in, if you have not embraced Jesus as your Savior and your all, you are against Christ, and Christ is against you. But friends, this, this, this means, if you're hearing this right now, that it is not too late. You have an opportunity to change course, just as the man who had the demon cast out of him had an opportunity now to listen to God, to ask for help. You too, if you're hearing this message, today can be for you a day of salvation. Hebrews chapter 6 describes something similar that happened in the early church. Something similar to what's happening here continues to happen in the church today. The writer of Hebrews chapter 6 talks about those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have experienced something of God's salvation by entering into a church family and seeing God at work, seeing the miracle of the new birth and changed lives and a kind of love among God's people that is supernatural. 
and who, like these religious leaders, at some point decide to reject the whole thing and walk away. And the same thing is awaiting such people. And even worse, judgment on the other end. I want to think with you for just the last few minutes that we have here of some symptoms, some signs of a hard heart. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you may be, in fact, harboring a hard heart and not even realizing. Here are some signs of of a hard heart. One is, at the very worst, skepticism towards God. Skepticism towards the truth. Skepticism towards God's word. A questioning of God and his goodness. You know that all of us can can have this. It can be on a, on a great scale. I remember a season in college where I became skeptical and began to question whether or not it was reasonable or rational to be a Christian. Now that I had a season of questioning things, but that skepticism didn't finally define me. I realized that in my pride I was seeking to judge God. But that skepticism can happen in much smaller ways. We can be questioning God's sovereignty in our lives, his goodness in withholding the gifts that we've been asking for. A skepticism as we read God's word. Is that really true? Does it really apply to me? Another sign of a hard-heartedness is simply indifference. An indifference to God. An indifference to Christ. A lack of a love for God. A love for Christ. And a desire to please Him. Brothers and sisters, are you harboring an indifference in your own heart this morning? Are you cold towards God? All of us are going to have different seasons in our spiritual walk. We're not always going to live on a daily high, a mountaintop experience with God. However, if you are cold in your heart towards God, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't hide that from others. Bring others into your struggle and into your battle. It is in the church and through the community of the saints that we can be fighting sin together. Another sign, and maybe the most dangerous one, is a hiding of secret sin, a harboring of the pleasures of sin, of growing in our heart a taste for sin. uh, Pastor John Piper has described this as flirting with Satan's candy store. We enter into Satan's candy shop and we want to order just a few ounces of candy. We begin to delight in lust. We begin to delight in success and what others think of us. We begin to delight in bitterness and resentment. We begin to delight in pity parties. Harboring sin is a sign of hard-heartedness, and it is a sign that you are, in fact, in your heart and in your life, walking away from Christ. Brothers and sisters, We need to be the kind of church that work with Christ to gather Christ's flock, to work with Christ to preach the gospel to the world and to care for the sheep that are among us. And we need to be the kind of church where we are able to come and be honest about our sin, about our secret struggles, and to know that we won't be rejected. But even as we take sin seriously, that we are willing to link arms with and partner with our brothers and sisters in Christ to undermine 
and to fight, to war against our sin, to put our sin to death. We need to be the kind of community in which we find that we are in a safe place as we bring our sins to light. And this is very counterintuitive to us. We tend to think I'm safe if nobody knows what I'm doing. We tend to think that I'm safe if I can hide my sin and no one really knows what's going on behind closed doors or in the dark. No, brothers and sisters, the only safe place for sin for the Christian is a sin that is in the light and a sin that is being dealt with with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are loving us, who are helping us, who are speaking truth to us and who are helping to develop a taste For Christ, that is sweeter than anything that sin or Satan can offer us. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as we see more of Satan's deception, we would delight in Christ as the great deliverer who delivers from such deception and blindness, who delivers from such dominion and domination, and who offers for us and will one day bring for us a day when we will no longer experience the tug of sin, and think of it as being attractive, where one day we will be able to stand before God and with Christ and to delight in righteousness and holiness and Christ himself forever without anything holding us back. Brothers and sisters, let's work with Christ to be shepherds with him, caring for the flock, gathering those who are under Satan's dominion through preaching the gospel and caring for those who are on their way to heaven by shouldering those loads. Brothers and sisters, let's work with Christ to gather and not scatter so that all of us will one day make it finally home. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we know that Satan is at work. We know that he is at work through his demons among us this very moment to harden our hearts to whisper lies to us, to bait us with secret sin. Father, I pray that you would be at work even now, convicting hearts of the need to turn from sin and to turn to Christ with all-out allegiance. We pray that you would be at work, saving sinners, sanctifying saints, so that we as a church would be a faithful witness to the watching world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.